Amen. At this time, we'll go ahead and dismiss the Kids to Kids Church. And as they are being dismissed, I want to encourage you this morning to open up to the book of 2 Samuel, chapter 12. This morning, we will be looking at two verses. We will be looking at two verses, 2 Samuel, chapter 12. We'll be looking at verses 24 and 25. 2 Samuel chapter 12, verses 24 and 25. Verse 24. Then David comforted his wife Bathsheba and went into her and lay with her. She gave birth to a son, and he named him Solomon. Now the Lord loved him and sent word through Nathan the prophet. And he named him Jedidiah for the Lord's sake. Let's pray. God, as we read this passage, Lord, may we see the love of God. May we see your grace and your mercy demonstrated through the birth of a beautiful baby boy. And may we apply the principles that are found in this passage to our lives. And may we know the God this, the God of love this morning in a very real and personal way. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, I'm going to take just a few moments this morning and back up and let us remind us and let us know how we got to where we are in the story. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, God gives... The covenant to David. He said, I will be your God, you will be my people. And we see in 2 Samuel chapter 7 a demonstration of the covenant God, much more so than we see the reality of who David is. We see in 2 Samuel chapter 7, we see God saying, I will be your God, you'll be my people. I will fulfill my covenant because of who I am. And then we see chapter 8, chapter 9, chapter 10, David fulfilling that covenant. David becomes, in chapter 8, David becomes the king over all of Israel. In chapter 9, David shows grace and mercy and compassion to the son of shame, to Mephibosheth, to the son of Saul. And God honors his covenant that he made, uh, that he made with Jonathan. And God pours out grace and compassion and providence to the son of Jonathan. Mephibosheth, who was a cripple, who was a, a product of shame and a product of, of disgrace. And we see in chapter 10, we see David, ex, David extending grace and compassion beyond the people of Israel to the people of the Ammonites when he sends, uh, a, a people, when he sends his messengers to the sons of Ammon to give them Uh, to console them in the death of the king of the Ammonites. And so we see in chapter 7, chapter 8, chapter 9, chapter 10, nothing but positive from David. David is experiencing and fulfilling the covenant that God promised him. David becomes king. David shows compassion. David shows, uh, shows mercy. David exemplifies the heart of God. David is a man after God's own heart. And then we get to chapter 11. And David undoes all of that with his, with his sin with Bathsheba, with the adultery that he commits with Bathsheba, with the murder of Uriah, with the conspiracy to cover it all up. We see David undo all, of, all that, that the author had showed us in 7, 8, 9, and 10. David undoes it all in chapter 11. And so I want to point out to you 
I want to point out to you in this, in this narrative that we see the duality of man, that we see a king who showed compassion. We see a king who loved just as God loved. And then we see a man who loved his flesh and served his flesh over God. And in the grace of God, God brought discipline to David. And last week we looked at the death of his son. And I want to remind us that with the death of David's son, we see the son of David dying the death that David should have died. I want you to hear that because it's a foreshadowing of the future son of David, Jesus, who would die the death that we all deserve to die. In 2 Samuel chapter 12, we see a beautiful picture of the coming Christ. The son of David would die the death that David deserved to die. And there will come a son of David, born from the lineage of Jesse, and laid in a stable, laid in a manger, worshipped by shepherds, worshipped by magi, that would ultimately die the death that you and I deserve to die. So we see in chapter 12, we see the picture of the gospel. Now, I want us to look at these passages in verse 24 and verse 25. And, and I want us to understand that up until this point, we, in, in chapter 12, David has, he has owned his sin, Whenever Nathan revealed to him, when the prophet Nathan came to David and said, David, you are this man. You have done what is evil in the sight of the Lord. That David did not blame. He did not transfer blame. He did not make excuses. He did not justify. David owned his sin. And then we see with the, uh, with the pinning and with the writing and the authorship of Psalm 51 that David had a repentant heart. That David was broken. He was, he was repentant. He turned from his sin. He sought the Lord. He had a change in mindset. He had a, a renewal of his thinking. And he again returned to the Lord. He said, Lord, restore unto me the joy of my salvation. Cleanse me from my blood guiltness. Cleanse me from what I've done. I have sinned against you and you alone have I done what is evil in your sight. And you are justified when you judge and you are blameless whenever you discipline. And so we see that. We see the repentant heart from David. And then we see verses 24 and verses 25. And I want to point out to you, as we begin verse 24, David comforted his wife Bathsheba. The only way David is able to comfort his wife is because David himself has been comforted by God. In Psalm 51, we get a picture of who David was. And David, as David cries out to God and he, he exposes his heart and he lays himself bare before God, David, I believe, is comforted by the God of peace and by the God of grace. And so David is able to comfort his wife. Now, I want us to understand that as Christians, as those who follow God, we are, not, we are not immune, we are not exempt, we are not uh, protected from the emotional trauma and the emotional ramifications of living in a broken world and in a fallen world. As I look out across the congregation this morning, I see people who have experienced a tremendous amount of hurt, pain, hardship, difficulty. 
Some of it, like David, is because of our own poor decisions. But some of it is simply because we live in a fallen world. And I want us to understand, church, that serving a loving, gracious, compassionate God does not mean that we are immune from depression, from hardships, from difficulty, from the emotional distress that is caused by living in a fallen world. When you have to bury your child, I don't care how much you love Jesus, you are going to hurt. When you lose a spouse of 40, 50, 60 years, I don't care how much you love Jesus, you're going to hurt. You're going to cry. You're going to mourn. You're going to grieve. And that grief may last the rest of your life. There is a reality, church. There is a reality that Christians, that those who follow Jesus are going to be experience grief, pain, mourning, sorrow, hardship. This idea that, that, that we're too blessed to be stressed. This idea that, 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 that if, if we love Jesus and we truly love Jesus and truly trust Him, that, that we won't experience depression or, or, or animosity or hardship. It's just, it's just a lie from the enemy. You read through the Psalms. What does David say? The man after God's own heart. He said, my bed, my bed sheets are soaked with tears. There are much more psalms that deal with the grief and the mourning and the hardship that David experienced than there is joy. Not saying that David was not a man of joy because he indeed, we see that whenever David, and we saw this early in 2 Samuel, that when the Ark of the Covenant was finally brought into Jerusalem, what did David do? He danced and he danced with joy. And he said, and, and, and they, they criticized him, they rebuked him. They said, what are you doing? You're the king. And he said, I will become even more undignified than this because I am filled with the joy of the Lord. That does not mean that he did not mourn and grieve. And so church, I want to give you permission because I believe that God has given us permission to hurt. When your marriage ends, when your children are running from the Lord, when you've been on your face praying for a loved one to repent and come back, when life kicks you in the teeth when there's the death of a loved one. It is okay to cry out to God. I want us to understand Psalm 34, verse 18. In the book of Psalms, we see over and over and over again, the Scripture gives us the encouragement that God is those who God is a God who cares for us. Look at verse 18 of Psalm 34. It says, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and He saves those who are crushed in spirit. Psalm 146, verse 9. In Psalm 146, verse 9, it says, the Lord protects the strangers. He supports the fatherless and the widows. He thwarts the way of the wicked. And in the very next chapter, in Psalm 147, verse 3, It says, He heals the brokenhearted and He binds up their wounds. In Psalm, I'm sorry, in Isaiah chapter 53, it tells us that Jesus Himself was a man 
acquainted with grief. A man of sorrows acquainted with grief. He knows the hardships, the difficulty, the sorrow. And so church, I want us to understand and I want to give you permission that when you hurt, it's okay to cry out to the God who loves you. The book of Job is 37 chapters of Job crying out to God. Job suffered inexplicably at the hands of the enemy. And for 37 chapters, Job cried out to God. God answered him in two chapters. And he answered him and said, Job, I'm God. I can handle it. It's okay to cry out to God. I believe that David cried out to God. And I believe that David was comforted. And that gave him the ability to comfort Bathsheba. Now, I want to point out something to you that that may be difficult for, for us Baptists to wrap our brains around. It may be difficult for, for us who are have a propensity to legalism, which is most of us. We have a propensity to say, you know what, this is right, right is right, wrong is wrong, it's black and it's white, and, and you know, David shouldn't have slept with Bathsheba, he did, he screwed up, you know, how do, we, how do we fix this? Now keep in mind that David already at this point has multiple wives, and for many of us, that we got problems with that, right? We should. If you don't have problems with that, well then, you know, we need to go back and we need to start at the beginning. And God gave to Adam one wife, Eve, and he said, the two shall become one flesh. And God blessed their marriage and they, they, they loved one another. And the scripture says, and, and God was pleased with that union. For the very first time in all of history, God said it's very good when he created man and woman together. One man and one woman. And so when we get to David and he's got multiple wives, and then he goes and takes another wife, and then he has her husband killed and hides it all. And then we get to this passage, 24 and 25, and we're like, wait a second. Now he's having another baby with another woman? And, and, and this, this ought not to be right. I want to point out to you, I believe, what is a principle that is found in God's Word. David and Bathsheba continue to live as husband and wife. They, they have a child. And I want us to see the principle of compassion and integrity. Was David wrong whenever he took, wife, took Bathsheba as his wife? Absolutely. Was David wrong whenever he sent for Bathsheba and had adultery with her? Absolutely. Was David wrong whenever he killed Uriah? Absolutely. Was David wrong when he tried to cover it up by, by making her honorable and making her his wife? Trying to pass this off as some, some type of kinsman redemption? Absolutely. Would it have been wrong for David to divorce Bathsheba? Absolutely. One mistake, one sin, does not make it okay for us to continue on a path of mistake after mistake after mistake. Just because you get pregnant outside of wedlock Was that a mistake? Yeah. That doesn't mean you kill the child and compound one mistake with another mistake. What David does is he says, you know what? I have screwed up, but I am going to do what is right. I'm going to honor the Lord from this point forward. And every one of us 
should be able to sympathize and even empathize with David. That, you know what, I have made mistake after mistake after mistake after mistake. But from this point forward, he had made her his wife. He had, he had made a commitment to her. You said, well, he had multiple wives. So, so, so what, divorce her? Send her off as, as a widow, as a divorced widow who is unmarketable, who has to live in abject poverty for the rest of her life and has to, has to live as someone who is broken and cast aside? Would that honor the Lord? No. He had made her his wife. Honor her. Love her. Care for her. Provide for her. Because that is what the Lord has called you to do as a husband. Now, don't misunderstand me. This is not an endorsement for plurality of wives. Husbands, don't go home to your wife and say, see, the preacher said I can have multiple wives as long as I take care of them. That is not what the preacher is saying. That is not what the preacher already. I've already had that discussion with my wife. She says, no, it's not, that, it's not happening. This is not an endorsement of, plur, of, of a plurality of wives. What this is, is I believe a biblical principle that we should not compound sin on top of sin. That once we find ourselves in a hole, stop digging. Once we find our, once God has revealed to our heart, this is wrong, we, we draw a line in the sand and we say, I am going to, from this point forward, do what is right. From this point forward, I'm going to do what's right. As followers of Jesus who live in a fallen world, who have a propensity to screw up time and time again, sometimes that's all we can do from this point forward. From this decision today onward, I'm going to do what's right. I'm going to honor the Lord. Now, Scripture tells us that David comforted his wife Bathsheba as a husband loving, caring, godly husband should do. And he went into her, and he lay with her. And she gave birth to a son. And he named that son Solomon. And what I want to point out to you is verse, the end of verse 24. He named, him son, he named the son Solomon, and the Lord loved him. It would be easy for Bathsheba and David to have the perspective that God was mad at them. After all, they had just suffered the loss of their son because of their sin. There is no other way of looking at that other than the reality of that realization. That my son died because I messed up. Because I sinned. The son of David died the death that I should have died. And so the natural response, the natural perspective is that God is angry with me. God is mad at me. God is exacting judgment upon me. But I want to point out to you the text. They named him Solomon. And the Lord loved him. I don't believe that God was mad at them. I don't believe that they were cursed by God. Go with me, if you will, to the book of Micah, chapter 7. 
I believe verses 18 and 19 reveal the heart and the character of our God. Micah chapter 7, verse 17 and 18. I'm sorry, verse 18 and 19. Who is a God like you? Who pardons iniquity and passes over the rebellious act of the remnant of his possession? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in unchanging love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. Yes, that will cast out all their sins into the depths of the sea. That reveals the heart and the character of the God whom David and Bathsheba were serving. Who does not deal with us according to the greatness of our transgression, but deals with us according to the greatness of His compassion. I want to point out to you now the names. Now, we see in this passage that Solomon gets two names. He gets Solomon and he gets Jedediah. Which one does he go by? Throughout the rest of the text, throughout the rest of the narrative, we, are, we see him referred to as Solomon. And, and so we're going to look at both of these names. But I want to talk to you for just a moment about names. Names mean something, especially in the Old Testament. We see throughout the Old Testament and even in the New Testament, we see names as a demonstration of character. Names as a demonstration of these characteristics that, that men and women had. The name Jacob. The name Jacob means deceiver, means liar. Now he was named Jacob before he lied and deceived. Yet as a, as, a, as a man who is named Jacob, what does he do? He lies and he deceives because his name literally means deceiver, liar. Jesus' name is the, Greek, is the Greek transliteration of the Hebrew Joshua, which literally means God saves. Interesting, isn't it? That the one who would save his people from their sins, name means God saves. Have you ever looked up your name? You ever looked up what it means? I got curious. I looked up my name. Preston. Comes from the Old English, which means to dwell in the church. It literally means the priest's settlement. Now, did my parents name me Preston because they knew that I was going to spend all my time at the church? They knew that, 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 that you know what, we're going to name him Preston because we want him to be a pastor. Because we want him to be a preacher. We want him to have his mail at one point in time sent to the church because he's going to live up there. No. But I find it very interesting that my name literally is derived from the town or the settlement of the priest, from the home of the priest. Names mean something. They carry weight. There's a story I've told before. I'm going to tell it again. Alexander the Great, one of the greatest military minds in all of the world, under Alexander the Great, the Hellenistic, the Grecian Empire was as far as the British Isles in the east, I'm sorry, in the west, to the Himalayan mountains in the east, to North Africa and the Sahara Desert in the south. It spanned all of civilization. 
Alexander the Great was possibly one of the greatest military minds and one of the greatest leaders to ever walk the face of the planet. And one day, Alexander the Great got word that one of his soldiers, one of his his, uh, men that was fighting in his army had left, had gone AWOL, and that they had captured him. Now the penalty for, for leaving and desertion, for going AWOL, was death. And so they, the commanding army, the commanding general asked him, they said, what do you want me to do with this man? And he said, bring him before me. And so Alexander the Great is sitting there in his throne room, and the young man is brought before Alexander the Great. And Alexander the Great looked at him and he said, son, what's your name? The young man looked up at Alexander the Great and he said, sir, my name is Alexander. At that, Alexander the Great lost his mind. He went absolutely ballistic. After he had calmed down, he gets right up in the young man's face and he says, change your actions or change your name. Because our names mean something. They carry with it characteristics. They they mean something. David named him Solomon. Solomon means He restores. He brings peace. David understood that the character of my God is a God who does not strive with us forever. He does not hold His anger. He does not hold a grudge. He's not bitter and angry. He is a God who is loving and caring and compassionate and God restores. And then Nathan shows up hearing that David has conceived the son. Now Nathan is the one who had just called David out for his sin. Nathan is the one who has just dropped the hammer on David. And Nathan shows up and he says, I heard you had a son from the Spirit of God. I have a name for him. And this is the name that God has told me to give your son, Jedediah. And if you look up the name Jedediah, it literally means loved by God. Beloved. Do you see what God is saying in this small passage in these two verses? God is telling David, I am not angry with you. I am not... I am not holding a grudge against you. I am not bitter against you. I have a love that is far beyond anything that you could possibly conceive. Yes, you, you served other gods. Yes, you, you, you worshiped this, this idol rather than me. Yes, you have committed adultery. Yes, you have committed murder. Yes, you have lied. Yes, you have stolen. Yes, you have coveted. Yes, you have broken all of the Ten Commandments in one fell swoop. You have dishonored me. You have made the, you have made Israel a a mockery amongst the nations. Yes, you have done evil in my sight. And yes, you deserve death. But I love you. And I am compassionate and gracious and slow to anger. I'm going to give you a son. And his name is going to be loved by God. God restores and God loves This encounter, these two verses, tell us more about God and His nature than they do about David and his character. 
in this narrative, we should see ourselves in David. But we should see the compassion and the grace and the mercy and the love of God as he deals with riffraff like us. As he deals with ragamuffins like us. God is rich in love and compassion. His love is beyond all of our comprehension. I've got three beautiful, obedient, wonderful children. And as my children act in a way that children are supposed to act each and every day, I'm reminded of God's compassion for us. Because my kids are like every kid. They don't do what they should do. They don't do their homework. They don't turn in their assignments. They don't clean their room. They do things they're not supposed to do. And I love them. In spite of all of their flaws, I love them. And even when I don't want to love them, even when I want to be mad, even when I want to, to, to just drop the hammer and, and, and ground them for all of eternity and, and, and line them up against the wall and, and take the belt and just whip them all because they all deserve it and I just I want to drop the hammer. I can't. Why? Because I love them. Even as, as disrespectful as they can be sometimes. They're not, they're not bad kids. They're great kids. But they're kids. And they do things that you just, you, you look at them and you say, what were you thinking? And you want to be mad at them. And every mom and dad that's sitting in here knows exactly what I'm saying. And now I'm, I'm, I empathize with my mom whenever she gets a call from the principal and the principal said, he put a bolt in the screwdriver, or I'm sorry, in the pencil sharpener. Just to see what it would do. And my mom is, I, I know what's going through her brain. She says, what were you thinking? And she wants to just hate me and be angry with me forever because I was just so brain dead and I was so disobedient and, and I was so rebellious. And, and, but she can't. Because she loves me. And the scripture tells us in the Gospels that if we, who are sinful men, are able to love our children, how much more is a heavenly Father who loves with a perfect love able to love us? And I want you to wrap your brains, if you can, around this. The amount that you love your kids cannot compare to the amount of love that, God's has, that God has for you. We've got a lot of new moms in here. Joel and Ashley just brought Charlotte home from the hospital. You know, excited to see Kimberly here this morning with Ray Lynn. And Amanda with baby Edgar and Amber with Sammy and lots of new babies. And that excitement and that joy and that love as you look down at that beautiful baby and you think, how could anything so precious 
ever do anything that would make me not love it. And then they become teenagers. (laughs) And then they become teenagers. And I believe that that's why God gave us the teenage years, so that we would be ready to kick them out of the house. (laughs) If they stayed like they are when they're zero through four, we would never let them leave. But then they hit puberty and we're like, get out of my house or someone is going to die. And as much as we love our kids, God loves us infinitely more. Infinitely more. God's rich in His love and His his love is beyond compassion. I want us to look at a few passages. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 17 through 19. Ephesians chapter 3. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you being rooted and grounded in what? Love. That you may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth. To know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge then you may be able to be filled with all the fullness of God. Hear what the text says, that we may know the love of God that you cannot know. Because His love is beyond, it is is the breadth and its depth, and it, it it is beyond anything that you could possibly comprehend and know. Look at what it says in the book of Romans, the love of God. Romans chapter 8, verse 38 and 39. Paul says it like this, For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. I want to unpack this for just a few moments. Do you hear what he said? He says, death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, that is spiritual forces, demons, including the devil, nor things that are present, nor anything that is ever going to come, nor any power that you can possibly imagine, or any power that you cannot imagine, nor any height, nor any depth, will anything, nothing that is created, and everything that was, everything that we can possibly imagine is created, because the only thing that's not created is God Himself. So, what Paul is saying is that there is nothing that will be able to separate us from the love of, of God. Wrap your brains around that if you can, because I can't. 1 John chapter 4, and we'll close with this. 1 John chapter 4, verse 9. By this, the love of God was manifested. He is about, the Apostle John is about to, to explain to us how God's love is demonstrated, is manifested. So listen. By this the love of God is manifested in us that God has sent His only begotten, His one and only, His unique Son into the world that we might live through Him. God loves us. He loves us and He demonstrated it by coming down to this earth bearing the burden of our sin that we might have eternal life. 
that we might demonstrate love to others. This morning, each and every one of us are David. We deserve death. We've made sin after sin, bad decision after bad decision. We stand before Him guilty and He looks at us and He says, Yes, you deserve death. Yes, you deserve judgment. Yes, you deserve wrath. But I love you. I love you not because of who you are, not because of what you've done, not because of who you might be, but I love you because of who I am. And I am showing my love in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. This morning, church, in this passage in 2 Samuel, may we see that God loves us. Was David deserving of God's love? No. Are we? No. But God gave David a son, and he named him Loved by God. This morning, if God has revealed to your heart the depth and the breadth of his love for you, and for the very first time, you need to trust Jesus as your Savior, I want to invite you to come in just a few moments as we sing a hymn of invitation. Maybe this morning you simply need to come to this altar and thank God for loving you when you didn't deserve to be loved. Maybe you need to this morning grab someone and come and pray. Maybe God's revealed to your heart, if God has loved me this much, maybe I should love others. The scripture tells us they will know you're my disciples when we love one another. Let's go to the Lord with the word of prayer. God, I thank you that you love us. I thank you that the depth of your compassion and your grace and your mercy is beyond compare. God, this morning as you're speaking to our hearts, may you remind us that we are loved. We are loved not because we do anything that that merits your love, We are loved not because of any of our works or any of our efforts or how much money we give or what church we go to, but we are loved because you are a God of love and compassion and grace and mercy. And you showed that love by dying on a rugged Roman cross and shedding your red, rich, royal blood. That if we'd place our faith and trust in you and in you alone, that we'd have eternal life. If that's you this morning, I want to invite you to come. Maybe this morning you're simply encouraged to know that God loves you. And you want to come to this altar and pray, seek God's face. Maybe you need to get on the on your knees right where you're at. Maybe God's calling you to be part of what we're doing right here at Redeemer. Demonstrating the love of Christ to a lost and dying world. Whatever it is the Holy Spirit speaking to your heart, may today be the day of decision. God, may your Holy Spirit speak to us and may you have the freedom to move in this place this morning. We ask this in Jesus' name.